0: Again, good morning. Good to see you. And uh, as I said at the 830 service, it's it's always a treat to look around and see faces that we don't know. So if this is your first time, a special welcome. And uh, my name is Brian Haybig, I'm one of the pastors here. That was Adam Radcliffe leading us in worship. He's one of our pastors as well. But so glad you're here. And if there's a question that we can answer or maybe resources we can help you with, please let us know. But we're just glad you're here. And uh, this is the portion of our worship service where we delve more into a a biblical passage. And we try to, when we can, look through books of the Bible instead of jumping around. We like to work through. So the the big one that we're working through right now is Hebrews. And if you don't know anything about Hebrews, it's in the New Testament. Uh, It's a pretty long book, it's 13 chapters long. We don't know who wrote it, but um, it's part of the New Testament collection. So we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can just follow in the bulletin, chapter 11, verse 32, and then we'll make our way a little bit into chapter 12. And if you haven't been here, just a little bit of background before I read the passage. Chapter 11 of Hebrews is is something of a famous passage. Now again, you may or may not have a lot of biblical background, but it's, it's famous for being a chapter about faith. And uh, now the reason the book of Hebrews is called Hebrews, it's written to a Jewish audience. And so they have grown up with what we would call the Old Testament. For them, it was just the Hebrew Bible. It was, it was the Bible. But uh, the writer of Hebrews in this chapter, he's just citing all these names. Some of them, some of you would know, but it's going back to, to Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. And you get some more names here in just a second. But he keeps saying that uh, by faith, they did this, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. The chapter starts with the definition of faith. The Bible doesn't always give you neat, tidy definitions, but it does at the beginning of this chapter and just talks about the centrality of faith. And, uh, you know, if we're not careful what that could leave you thinking was, okay, so faith, I just, you know, hey, just kind of trust God and, uh, you know things will just work out, which at one level is true. But what that could sound like is, hey, you know, just kind of trust God and uh, life's not that complicated. Life is really complicated and uh, and very hard. And the, the Bible, especially the New Testament, doesn't have any hesitation to use images that convey the rigor of the Christian life. And, and one of them is from Jesus. Jesus said, If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. Now, where our mind goes is to his cross, but he said this to people who haven't seen his cross yet. What they've seen are condemned criminals going off to their own execution, bearing their own cross. So, intense pain and suffering and a finite end. And he's saying, you have to do that with me if you're going to be my disciple. Rigor, difficulty, pain. Uh, This passage has uh, another metaphor, another image about the the rigor of the Christian life, and it's the image of of running. And I, I think if you're here this morning, I hope it's beneficial to whoever is here, but if you're here this morning and you're thinking, Man, I hear people talk like, hey, just kind of let go and let God and everything will be squared and this year will be a piece of cake. You're, you're kind of thinking, my year is not a piece of cake. I haven't had any pieces of cake. My life is hard. Then I think this can really be beneficial for you. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32. So after all these names that we've heard, the writer writes, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we get to gather together, not in our own name, not in the name of downtown Presbyterian, but in the name of your Son. And we get to hear your words, we get to say your words back to you and with each other that we get to sing, that we get to be with one another, that we, in a little bit, gather around your table and we pray. But thank you that we get to hear you now. And please help us, uh, whether it, whether the obstacle is distraction right now or drowsiness or preoccupation or fatigue or cynicism, please help us to hear you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This past October, a Facebook friend of mine—and and he really is a Facebook friend, more of an acquaintance uh, outside of Facebook—but he uh, he ran an ultra marathon called the Moab Two Hundred and Forty back in October. This this is a ultra marathon in and around Moab, Utah, and uh, it, it's supposed to cover about two hundred and thirty eight miles, but they call it the Moab Two Hundred and Forty. Now, um, he is a Christian. He's a Christian counselor, actually, in my hometown of Jackson. He wrote this very long, extremely well-written post about this. So let me, let me give you a few excerpts. He was converted later in life out of drug addiction. So here's how his post starts about this uh, ultra marathon. I have done a lot of drugs in my life. It's always a great way to start for an ultra-distance uh, event. All kinds, crack cocaine, LSD, DMT, mushrooms, opiates, benzos. I have used these drugs to take me to different levels, different places in my experience. I have used them in combinations with each other, with the desire to experience planes of reality that cannot be obtained in everyday life. I have done exercises in sleep deprivation in combination with various drugs, all in the hopes of transcending reality. In many cases, I succeeded, but with a price. Uh, We cannot abuse ourselves with drugs without experiencing consequences to self. I became a drug addict. And he talks about that. Then he says, I use this bit of history as a backdrop for my experience in Moab. In many ways, this experience turned into something that I had no idea it would, kind of like my drug use. I knew that running for 250 miles that attempting to move over the land for 80 hours would be a challenge and that it would allow me the freedom to transcend my reality. And he goes on to describe that what I didn't know is that it would disintegrate my, like, sense of self. Now, he gives quite a description over the mile markers, but let me. this is uh, past the 200-mile mark. And by the way, just let that wash over you. <laughs> because, do you understand how... Here's what that is. That would be like you running a marathon, which just like destroys people. Running a marathon, and then you get back and you get to the finish line and someone says, run another marathon. And so you run another marathon and you get to the finish line and then the person says, okay, now run to Atlanta. Then you're at about 200, 40 to go. He says after the 200 mile mark, uh, I can remember looking at my watch, but I couldn't make any sense of what I saw. I couldn't comprehend time. I couldn't make sense of the concept of distance. I had no clue what was going on. If I was awake or asleep, where I was or what I was doing here, like I said, I knew what the objects in front of me were, but I couldn't decipher their meaning. Nothing was making any sense. I was losing it. I could feel panic creeping in because I just didn't know what was going on. The more I tried to make sense of it, the more I struggled, and the greater the panic was. I could tell that my breathing was becoming more and more shallow. I looked at my watch again, but still nothing but hands and numbers. I looked at the rocks again, feeling them under my feet, still nothing. How could I fix this? How could I get out of this? I was experiencing total ego disintegration. I was scared. Yes. And if we're going to use the metaphor of of life is not just a run, certainly not a sprint, but not just a marathon, an ultra marathon that it takes our whole life to run, that actually rings true. And you may not be in a season like this, but I know some of you well enough to know that you either are in or have recently been in a season where it is so painful and so grueling and so unexpected that you begin to feel like, I kind of don't know how I feel about things anymore or how I think about things anymore. Like it's so painful and threatening and disorienting, it's even sort of taking apart my sense of who I always thought I was. Because life is hard. And it takes your, at the risk of stating the obvious, it takes your whole life to do it, to run that race. And I don't know if you noticed this in the passage. We're going to get into it more in a second. But but the writer says, he calls it the race that is set before us. Now, that's interesting because it's not the race that you pick. You're the passive recipient of a race that is given to you. And, uh, you know, and I, I I listen to a lot of cool podcasts and I read, you know, around on the the internet and read, you know, self-help stuff sometimes. But that is at odds with almost everything that you're hearing. Because what you're being inundated with is you can design the life that you want. So you can craft the life that you want. There's ways to, like, enforce that and Put systems in your life so that you have the life that you want. And this says there is a race that is set before you. And you might have, like, really figured out nutrition and workflow and who your community and your friends are going to be and your neat relationships. And if God wants to put something that absolutely, totally disrupts that in your path, that is your race. And we're called to run it. So how do you do that? And and the overwhelming message here is when you run, you run by faith. What does that look like? So let's look at this run. And I want to think about two things. The heritage of running and the hero of running. The heritage of running and the hero of running. Now the heritage really, it's not just our passage, it's this whole chapter. The writer has just given you all these names. From again, we would say the Old Testament. And on the one hand, you've got people who did great things. Look in verse, uh, look up in verse thirty-three. Who, after list these names? Now, you, some of them are from the Book of Judges. David and Samuel are more well-known. Verse thirty-three: Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Uh, They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. I recently reread the account of a guy in the Bible named uh, Caleb. And when these spies were sent at God's command into the promised land before, before Israel had gone into the promised land, they went in to spy it out and they saw this gigantic race of people called the Anakim. And it terrified all the spies. It, uh, it, but there's this one guy named Caleb, and every time I, in my mind's eye I see him, he always looks like Jack Black to me in my mind because everyone else is just uh, absolutely coming unglued about the Anakim, and Caleb is sort of the one guy going, hey, who's with me? We're going to start the revolution. You know, like, we're, we can totally take these guys. What the writer is saying is that wasn't because he was so tough and he was special ops. He, he did what he did by faith. God said, if you will trust me, I will fight for you. And Caleb trusted him and God fought for them. So on the one hand, they did these amazing things, but then like, but there's a twist on it. Cause if, if it was just that, it would sound like there were these kind of magical storybook Bible figures and whether they even really existed or not be like them. But then they become real because they're flawed characters. Uh, If if you want to read about flawed characters in God's story of redemption, read the book of Judges. The book of Judges has more weirdness in it maybe than any other book of the Bible. And some of these guys like uh, uh, Samson, Jephthah, they're right there in the middle of it. They're not household names, even if you've read the Bible some. Jephthah was one of the judges that God used to lead God's people in Israel before there were kings. And he called Jephthah to lead militarily. And he does lead. And, uh, and they have a victory. And Jephthah comes home and he makes this vow to God that he was so pumped about this victory. He vowed, when I get home, whatever walks out the front door, I will sacrifice it to God. Now, unless you have a house full of nothing but cattle, that was not a great idea. And uh, as it turned out, his daughter walked out. And actually, by the law of Moses, that shouldn't have been a binding vow, but he kept it. He gave her time to mourn her own death with her friends, and then he sacrificed her. Just a crazy, crazy, weird story. And there he is. He was a man who lived by faith. Samson the womanizer. There he is. So they're, they're, they're flawed people. They're flawed characters in this roll call of people who had faith. Uh, and the other thing is they suffered a ton. You know, when you first hear they stopped the mouths of lions, they escaped the edge of the sword. People got, uh, there was resurrection from the dead. It might sound like victory, victory, victory. Well, look again at verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned they were sawn in two. Tradition says that's how Isaiah the prophet was killed. Sawn in two. Gruesome. So, what are we supposed to do with all this? Um, these people, they did what they did by faith. They did amazing things by faith. They were flawed people who did what they did by faith. And they also went through very difficult times of suffering. What am I supposed to do with all this? And the writer says, here's what you're to do with that. Chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, and that's always important, you know, in light of everything I just said, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of, now this is interesting, you would think after he's been talking about faith, 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 faith believe, believe, faith that he would say, such a great cloud of believers. That's not what he says. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which uh, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What does that mean that all these people, Abraham and Noah and David and Jephthah and Samuel and all that, what does it mean that they're witnesses? And this is an interesting image. It says they're a cloud of witnesses. And it's actually the image of a stadium and an athletic event. You know, if you get a Goodyear blimp shot of a stadium, you can't really make out individual people. It's like a cloud of people. And so the image is, you and I are running this lifelong ultramarathon race, and we're surrounded. Maybe we can't even make out the individual faces, but these are people who believe, but they're called a cloud of witnesses. Now, what do witnesses do? Witnesses testify to something. So as we're running, and sometimes just saying, I can't run anymore, I've got to stop. And they're saying, go. What are they testifying to? They're testifying to the fact that if you trust Him, you will find Him trustworthy. If God says something to you that seems to be at odds with everything that you can see, and everything you're feeling... In all the normal ways the world usually works, if he says something, either something that hasn't happened yet or something that's there that you can't see, but he says, it's there or I'm there, you can trust him. And they're calling out to us, don't, we all had to do this. No one's race is exactly the same, but all of us had to run this ultra marathon. Keep running, you can trust him. Part of what they're witnessing to is it can be done. Let me read you this from Runner's World. This is from um, last weekend. I'll just read you the headline. Jasmine Paris sets new course record for 268-mile spine race. Now, the spine race is an ultramarathon in the U.K., Jasmine Paris <clears throat> won the whole race. She shattered the prior record. She broke the prior record by 12 hours. This was last weekend. But let me read the whole headline. Jasmine Paris sets new course record for 268-mile spine race, expressing milk for her daughter along the way. And I did not know that expression. <laughs> but apparently that is a Britishism for pumping if you have one who's still ingesting your milk. So when Jasmine wasn't running the 268 miles, she was stopping off every once in a while to pump for her 14-month-old. Now, every person I've told that to in the last week has, has kind of made a face like, what? Part of what's amazing about that, besides the fact that a human can run 268 miles, is that a human could do that. But we know that a human can do that because she finished, because she did that. You know, if we did not have, I mean, this is the harder race. With all due respect to the ultramarathoners, this is the harder race. If we did not have the martyrs, uh, if we didn't have the men and women who, like, they blew it and they sinned, and there were lapses in their faith in God. But over a lifetime, they trusted what God said. And even under attack, even under torture, even under martyrdom, they actually finished. Because if we didn't have those people, we might be prone to think, hey, you know what? If, if, if you get tortured, you get, a, you get a, a pass on caving at the end. And there's this whole stadium of men and women saying, you can run the whole race, but you'll have to do it by faith. You cannot go on what you see and what you feel. You must do it by faith. And that's our heritage. Who's the hero? Because here's what, here's what I want to guard against. I don't, want, I don't want you to hear that Abraham trusted and so be like Abraham. And, uh, and Noah trusted God, so be like Noah. There's some very particular ways I would say, don't be like Noah. Don't get drunk and pass out naked in front of your kids, like Noah, or really anyone, <laughs> ideally. So no, the end game is not be like these Bible characters, although there, there are things that we would like to emulate in their lives, but the hero, and I'm I'm even going to put it this way. This This is the quote, why we run. If you sign up for an ultra marathon, you better have a compelling why. I mean, it better be in memory of a loved one that you lost. You better be raising money for something that you are passionate about. You better have some massive thing that you've got to prove to somebody or to yourself, but you better have a compelling why or you will not finish. What is the compelling why of our ultramarathon that takes your whole life to run it? Jesus Christ is our why. Let, let me ask you a, a, a theology test, a little true/false theology test. I've heard this asked when I, Adam and Jonathan and I, when we we're at Presbyterian, we we examine people to be ordained. True or false? You are saved by your faith. You don't have to respond audibly. But what do you think? True or false? You are saved by your faith. False. We are saved by Jesus, by God's grace, through faith. Does that make sense? We we don't faith our way into heaven, that turns faith into a work. We are saved by the person and work of Jesus, by God's grace. But how do we avail ourselves of that? Through faith. But we're saved by him. And let's apply that to the run, the ultra marathon. He's the, this is great, he's the originator and he's the object of the faith. He's both. Look at how it describes him as the originator go back to chapter 12, the first verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, now get this, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus founds not just the Christian faith or abstract faith. Jesus founds our faith. We don't manufacture faith. You don't concoct or produce your own faith. God gives you faith. Jesus is the founder of our faith. So, if you've heard of St. Augustine, Augustine said, this is really great, he said, God, God gives what God requires. God requires faith of us. Do I manufacture it? God gives you the faith that he requires. And he's the perfecter of it. That it's Jesus who over a lifetime is showing us how to run this ultra marathon. And there's different images of that in scripture. You know, I've got a Japanese maple in, uh, in our backyard. And it's just gone years without really being pruned. And Japanese maples can just become like a Gordian knot. So it's winter. The leaves are off it. I can see the branches. And I've been trying to learn about how to prune trees and watching videos about pruning. I was watching a guy, master gardener, loves pruning, loves to teach about it. I was watching a video about him. He's actually a Christian too. And so it, somebody followed him with a video camera and he's talking about where you cut. He said, master pruners do not begin on the outside. They always start on the inside and work out. And then all of a sudden he turned to the camera and he said, you know, that's how God prunes us. That's true. God does not begin. Jesus does not begin with our peripheral behaviors. But he, you know, let boy... If he gets in your life, <laughs> he will look in there and say, all right, now do you see this? I know you enjoy this so much, but this whole branch is a way that you don't trust me. This whole thing has grown out so that you don't have to really take me at my word or rely on me. And that whole branch is taking nutrition and goody out of you. We're going to take that out, and you'll be more beautiful will be more fruitful. It's counterintuitive. We're going to remove so that there might be more of you. And he perfects our faith over a lifetime and it hurts sometimes so that we can run this whole race. But he's also the object. You know, when you're running, it's there's different ways you can look. You can look at the destination. You can look away from it to kind of take your mind off it. You can really watch your feet or the surface, but all those have pros and cons. Where do you look in this ultra marathon? Because if you look at your own running, believe me, you'll become very discouraged. And if you stare even at the entire church full of runners, you will become very discouraged. Stare long enough at the church, you will get very discouraged. Looking to Jesus. And this is really great because that means two things. One is that he's the ultimate example, his race was awful, his race ends with injustice and torture and murder. But he ran it. He, it was so bad, he despised the shame of it. But he ran it for the joy of doing just what his father said, the joy of securing our salvation And so that not only he, but we could be right there at the Father's right hand where all the joy is. It says in Psalm 16 that there's pleasures at God's right hand. He said, I I want to be there, but I want all my people to be there. For the joy of doing that, he finishes the race. Look at Jesus for endurance And faithfulness for a model, the ultimate model. But if you if you stop there, that's discouraging. Because if I just say to you, "Hey, here's what I want you to do: just be perfect like Jesus." Let's close in prayer. That's discouraging. We are to imitate Jesus, but when He finished His race, it's great because Adam said this sentence when He was uh, setting us up to have the Lord's Supper that Jesus said, "It is finished." When Jesus finished his race, he took care of everything that's wrong with our running. The distrust, the unbelief, the disobedience, the completely getting off the path and running away from God because I want to run over here because I think there's something better than you over here, God. All of it. And makes us clean, makes us accepted, makes us delightful to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So look at him. Um, did you catch what it says, though, about the run? If you're going to run, you better strip down so that you can run. I mean, it feels a little weird to say this to you, but the image is not of like, Olympic athletes in two thousand, you know, the 2000s where you've got this cool gear. How did great competitors compete? Naked. I'm trying not to say naked. Naked. Anything that would hinder you, the, the, the baggy sweatpants that make you run slower, the big coat that makes you move slower, strip anything that makes you run slower. Okay, so what is the thing he says we need to strip? Sin. Think about this image of the run. Like, do, do you, are you a gossip? I am sometimes. And think about what gossip is if you run it through the template of a race. Gossiping is like me grabbing one of you to say, hey, did you hear? She turned her ankle at mile 53. Look at this. This is video from a trail cam that's on my phone. Let's look at her and watch her turn her ankle and be so glad that our ankle didn't turn. You know what I'm not doing in that moment? Running. Running. I'm delighting in her misfortune to feel better about myself, but I'm not running. We need to strip that off. All of us gossip way more than we think we do. Are you a grudge holder? Essentially, what is holding a grudge? Holding a grudge is, you got in my way at mile 40 and it has messed up my time. The more you fixate on that, guess what you're not doing? Running. Running that is not helping us run at all. If that was part of my race, that they held me up, what am I to do now? Run the race. Are you holding a grudge? we need to strip that off and forgive that person. Great opportunity for discussion in community groups. Let me end with this. Just uh, Last weekend, I was at a wedding back in my hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, and I got to visit something that has has been built and started since I was there last. It's the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum in downtown Jackson, and uh, and that's interesting because some of the actual events that it documents happened in downtown Jackson. It's really it's really great if you ever get to go. But toward the end of the exhibit, you step into a room and you started seeing these black and white mug shots of protesters who were arrested in Jackson, and so you'll just get that black and white, very clear photos, and they've got a number and, uh, and the date, and it says Jackson Miss. Well, you walk into this room and you look up and there's just this whole, if I can put it this way, there's kind of a cloud of mug shots. And because they looked the camera straight in the eye, when you look at the picture, they're looking at you. And some of the faces look understandably angry. Some of the faces look understandably uh, somber. But what's weird is that some of the faces look happy. And there's one young man's face in particular who looked, I, I, I don't know how he did this because he's an African-American man, but he's looking in the camera and he's smiling and it's the look of, I know that I'm right. I don't care what the culture is saying. I don't care if I'm being arrested. I know that this is true. And as he looks you in the eye, it has the feeling of, so, okay, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with this now? And friends, I want to end on this note. There really is a sea of faces looking at us right now. And I'm not saying let's pray to them or venerate them. But Noah and Abraham and David and Augustine and Augustine's mom, Monica, that prayed for him to become a Christian and on and on. They are looking at us and they're saying, you can trust him. I know it seems like it would be so awesome to stop running and just turn on a high-definition TV and just drink something and give up. Trust him. Is it hurting? Trust him and keep running. And at the end of the race, you'll meet the founder of the race. And that's where the joy is. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, please help us. All of us come to you right now with empty hands and we say, we're not, we're not good at running. We turn our ankles and our knees are killing us and we've gotten off the path stopped running altogether, sat down, said, this is ridiculous. And however we are this morning, please help us. We pray that we would know the joy of Jesus himself, who knew that on the other side of the suffering and pain was joy at your right hand. So please help us. If we're confused, if we're tired, if we're sad about the race set before us, please help us. For the person here who's never had faith, would you give him or her faith right now to trust you? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.